Welcome to My Limited View with Sergio Novoa and Vanessa Wilkins, where we share stories and expand our views. I flirt with my therapist. Stop giving your love. Giving giving you this one time on Muni. Your parents love you. He was my first. Life is good. It felt like home. Secrets. We all have a story. What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? All right, you guys, welcome back to My Limited View. Welcome back to My Limited View. I feel like I'm going to start singing My Limited View as well. And when I say sing, I'm being very generous with the word sing. Just want to throw it out. How's it going, lady? How are you doing? Uh, I'm going good. I'm not feeling my light today, but we had, we had, a, rush to this, I had a rush to this interview today, so you'll have to excuse the look. Wait, oh, you, you have artificial light. This is my natural look. What are you talking about? Get out of here. Would you stop <laughs> it? <laughs> yes, no, I ended up having to get lights because I, now I look even. I have like one tone. and You look fantastic. Oh, thanks. I woke up like this, me and Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Sorry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yes, today we have a very special guest. I actually met him through TikTok. Yes, I am on TikTok. Sergio the Comic, you can find me. And are you on TikTok, lady? I just, there's uh, social media, I, man. It's work. Really, I yeah. can't, it's so much work. I, it's frustrating. It is. It is very frustrating, trust me. Especially, I will put comedy clips of myself. The most you can put on TikTok is one minute. If I have any taboo jokes, they block me. But yet, they'll have a 14-year-old shirtless swinging his dick from side to side in front of the mirror. They'll pick up a towel, cover their their nether regions and then go side to side while their dick and balls hit their thighs and it makes this they'll put that on but god forbid i make a taboo joke so yeah tiktok's a bit annoying but yeah i met our guest on tiktok he is a burn victim survivor so can you imagine being 20 you wake up every day you're excited about life and then one day everything's turned around so his face has just got burned and I approached him and asked him if he would be interested in sharing his story, and he said he would. So our guest tonight is uh, John Capanna. He has a very positive outlook on life, and it kind of goes to the thing I've always said, it's we humans only grow through adversity. And- That's the truth. Yeah, and hearing, you know, he's been in this skin for 21 years, and his outlook, his optimism is so infectious, and it's so inspiring because, you know, my left that bothers me and I'm like, oh, I'm done. No, folks, check yourself. Uh, so yes, I'm really excited for everyone to meet him and hear his story. And hopefully you are just as inspired as I am. So are you ready to bring him on? Let's do it. Welcome to My Limited View from South Jersey, John Capanna. John hey, Capanna. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. John is 61 years old from South Jersey, and when you were 20 years old, John, you had a life-changing experience. What happened when you were 20? Uh, I was working in an oil refinery and uh, was cutting through a pipeline that was supposed to have uh, water in it, and I was using a acetylene torch, um, and the pipeline exploded and caught me full force in the chest and the face and my upper body. I was burned over 90% of my body. Half of it was third degree. And uh, turns out, obviously, it wasn't a water line. They had uh, painted it the wrong color. It was a crude oil line. And there was just enough crude oil in the line for the hydrocarbons to build up. And when it broke loose, they said it was equal to eight sticks of dynamite when it exploded. Wow. Wait, repeat that. How many sticks of dynamite? Eight. Eight oh. sticks of dynamite. Yeah. I heard you correctly. Wow. You're yeah. a bionic man. You survived that. Oh, I'll tell you what. It was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. That's, that's an interesting adjective to use. Pretty amazing. <laughs> I cannot imagine that impact coming at you. Wow. That's, I tell people it's like going to a water fountain to get a drink of water and the water fountain exploding. Wow. You're just not ready for it. I mean, it's just... Not ready. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Wow. So when this happened, what was your life before this stuff? What was it? 
because you were 20 years old, you were starting out, you, you know, just finished high school, you're probably in college. What was your life prior to the accident? Uh, you know what, I was pretty much a normal 20 year old kid. I, I just moved into an apartment that was vacated by my grandmother. So I was out on my own for the first time. <clears throat> and, you know, I had everything I think that a 20 year old want. I had a pickup truck, a motorcycle and a couple of girlfriends. So I was pretty happy. Um, <clears throat> I did a lot of drinking though back then. Um, it was very common in the oil refineries uh, for us to uh, go out at lunchtime and actually uh, drink our lunch and have a sandwich maybe. But uh, I, I, I think looking back now that I was probably addicted to alcohol before the accident. At 20 years old? Was it just because it was fun for you to do or were you trying to suppress something or what was driving you to drink? Uh, I think there was some childhood trauma. I think we all have something from our childhood that we, that we don't even know is there. And this is one of the things that I thought was, uh, you and I were talking about earlier, that something like this that seems so tragic can turn into a gift because it causes you to have to go inward and look at yourself and not be distracted by other people, other places and other things, which is so incredibly easy to do today, uh, especially with the internet. Um, so it pushed me to do that. And I have a friend out in Oregon and she calls it a horrible gift. Um, you know, it's not like, uh, people hear you say that, even my surgeon heard me say it in the documentary. And he said, I think, they asked, what do you think about that? And he said, I think they're rationalizing. And you know what? I'm not rationalizing. I'm telling you right now, the difference between my life today and back then is unbelievable because of going on that inward journey. And I never would have taken it. I, I probably would have kept drinking and doing whatever I was doing. I may have got killed in a car accident or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah. No, definitely. Um, what was it like? So you got hit, eight dynamites go off in front of you. Were you out for a few days? What was it like when you finally came to? I never lost consciousness. Oh, wow. So you were aware of all of that. You were feeling the pain of it I was it in shock. I was covered in hot crude oil and my whole body was burning. Um, but the force of the explosion picked me up and threw me into a steel column behind me. Oh my. And then I had already covered my face with my hands, but it was too late. I already had hot crude oil on me. And I don't know how I had the strength to do it, but I got up and I remember there being a door, a double door that was open on the end of the building and I ran out the door there was these small retention basins out there that they used to pump water out of. <clears throat> and uh, I was going to jump in one of those, but uh, fortunately I didn't make it there. I tripped over my own feet and fell flat on my face. Uh, I probably would have died of some kind of infection if I had gotten to the water. Uh, but the guys that worked with me patted me out. Uh, the oil company that that own a refinery. <clears throat> I have no problem naming their name, but I'm not going to. It doesn't make any difference. They wouldn't allow me to be taken out in an ambulance. They threw me on a plank, put me in the back of a dirty old pickup truck. What? Yeah. Wow. They, uh, they wouldn't allow their, their firefighters or their paramedics to respond um, because, because I was an outside contractor. I worked for an outside contractor. So <clears throat> they took me out to the road, uh, the gate on the, in a little Datsun pickup truck that was just, just filthy dirty with grease and stuff from us working. And I waited there for a, a wheeled ambulance to arrive. 
and it took me to a local hospital that had no idea what to do with me. Wow. You know, but I was conscious the whole time. I was fighting people off in the emergency room. Of course so you, you were. Wow. Crazy. Can you um, tell me how, how much of your body was burned? 90%, 45% was, uh, was um, third degree. Wow, I can't believe you were cognizant that entire time. Did you feel the extreme pain or again, were you just in total shock? I was in total shock. I can tell you what, I can show you what a 45% degree burn looks like if you want. Oh, wow. Oh, I see, got it. And it wraps around like my, my rib cage and like my, my arms. Once you got to the hospital and they were able to, I guess, calm your body down or numb the pain, when you actually came out of that and you saw yourself for the first time in the mirror, what was your reaction? Were you bandaged? Uh, that, 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 was, that was a long time later. Uh, my, my father came to the hospital. My mother stayed outside with a medevac helicopter. Probably it was a Vietnam veteran who was trying to keep her calm. Um, <clears throat> but they transported me to the nearest burn unit and I almost died when I got there because I had too small of an airway. They put the wrong size tube in my throat. My throat collapsed and I couldn't breathe. And they told me if I wasn't conscious, I would have died because I wouldn't have been able to swallow the next tube. But I went through probably six weeks to two months in the burn unit before I ever saw myself and it was an accident. Everything in the burn unit is made so it doesn't shine, even your utensils and stuff and the beds and everything around them. They don't want you to see your reflection because it's just really traumatic. But one of the uh, attendants was walking me down the hallway just to get a little exercise. And I told him I had to go to the bathroom and he wasn't thinking. And he let me go in the bathroom and I just, uh, <clears throat> it really, it really, um, I don't even have words for it. I mean, I was just shattered. Uh, I think I remember throwing up, but I was absolutely shattered because I didn't know, uh, you know, obviously they didn't tell me how bad it was. And we joked around about them making me look like Clark Dable or, you know what I mean, doing that kind of thing. And I was thinking of plastic surgery, not reconstructive surgery. And it's not the same thing. Um, so, and it was, it was a hard, it was a hard uh, pill to swallow. Most 20 year olds don't have the maturity to look at yourself in the mirror and see such a, you're no longer the person you used to be. You, you're not recognizable to yourself. So that, that's, thank you. That, that's, imagine that waking up tomorrow morning and not seeing your face in the mirror. I mean, it, it's, it's just otherworldly, it's surreal. It's like, yeah. oh my God, you know. I'm, I'm curious, how did you, how did you cope with that? Is there, how did you manage that over, over time? I'm sure it would, took time, but. I used a lot of drugs. I probably would have <laughs> too, John. I mean, honestly. I had, when I left the burn unit, when you're, you're in a burn unit, burns are the most, the worst pain you can get. The, the only pain that comes close to it is childbirth. Obviously, I have no point of reference for that other than watching it. And they give you a cocktail back then. It was called a Brompton's cocktail. And every opiate that they had in the pharmacy, plus all the benzos they had in the pharmacy, they would mix them together and give that to you in a drip. And it still didn't kill the pain. It just made it more bearable. Uh, <clears throat> so... When I left the burn unit, uh, my surgeon, you know, looked my parents right in the face and said, your son's a drug addict. We made him a drug addict. He's gonna be a drug addict for the rest of his life. You know, I did that for a while because I had 72 surgeries over like a 10 year period 
And every time I went back in the hospital to have surgery, they gave me more narcotics. So it's just a, a vicious cycle, uh, like being on a one of those squirrel wheels that you just keep running around, around, around. And it wasn't until I finally <clears throat> bottomed out with that. I had been to a couple of rehabs um, and the doctors refused to write me prescriptions for any medication. Uh, you know, that I was able to uh, get clean in 1996. I was introduced to a 12-step program in 1983 while I was in my first rehabilitation hospital. So I knew that it was there, but I wasn't ready for it yet. I had all these surgeries to go through, and I was just completely shattered. I mean, there are no words to describe how I felt. And, how dismal my outlook was for my life at 22, 23 years old. You know, and then I got my settlement from the from the company that that owned the refinery. I got the largest out of court settlement in the history of the state of New Jersey, eleven and a half million dollars. People, you know, thought that was a big deal. The only reason I thought it was a big deal was the only tangible thing they could give me for what happened to me. Other than that, they could have taken that money, you know, whatever. I could use some euphemisms, but all I would, only thing I would have asked for was put me back where I was on the 5th of October. But it's, the anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's coming yeah. up. Now, you mentioned earlier when you were in the hospital, you know, your mom stayed outside. So how was your dad essential or involved in your recovery and your process of healing? My dad was much more straightforward and he had a poker face. He was able to look at me and being a 20 year old that I was, first thing I wanted to know is equipment still worked, if it was still intact. <laughs> and he picked up my covers and he looked underneath, he said, yeah, you're good. And I was like, okay, you can save my life then. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done if he had said, but he was great like that. You know, so he was he was uh, always telling me how good I looked and man, they're doing such a great job. And when I got out of the hospital, it was like that I spent more time with him than I did anyone else. Like I was telling you earlier, he, he was not gonna allow me to become a recluse. He was not gonna let this be my my death warrant. Yeah, he, he started doing things immediately to empower me. You know, he had to you know, say things like, don't tell your mother I let you do this. <laughs> so you can imagine, like, driving the car with uh, blind in one eye and, like, half blind in the other because my eyes were actually so shut. And, like, the last mile to the house, he said, come on. And it was so empowering. It was just a mile in an old car. And that was the kind of stuff he did. I mean, he just, you know, he talked about, you know, being one of nine children and being a middle child, I, I always feigned affection because I never felt like I got enough attention and affection, you know, and now this happens and I get all the attention. And my father redeems himself in my eyes. Not that he had done anything wrong when I was a kid, but I, get, I got to get him. I got to have him in a way that none of my other siblings had him, you know, and there was this closeness there between us and he really struggled with my addiction but he was also very understanding at the same time because he told me one time I don't know what I would have done if what happened to me yeah. happened to you it happened to me because that's that's it you don't yeah, yeah. How, how was he making it possible to be with you uh my dad was a bricklayer and a wannabe everything he, he loved he would have loved to have been a doctor but he was a bricklayer. He sold his life insurance. We had the insurance company, Workman's Comp, agreed to pay him as my nurse, you know, just for doing bathing and dressings and, you know, taking care of me. So that was the way he supported his family. I think he was getting like less than $300 a week back in the early 80s. You know, he had four other kids that were still at home to take care of. And, you know, he was taking care of me. And I think that uh, one of my uncles lent him money 
my father was not one to take anything from anybody. But he, he was very creative, too. He, he found ways to keep me busy and to help me focus on other uh, things other than what was going on in my life. Because you have to understand, not that you can, that there's, there's such a thing as trauma. There's such a thing also that I've discovered is called re-traumatization. Okay. And I had never heard anybody use that term. I started using it. And that is, I, you know, when I went into the burn unit and I went through all these life and death situations and I had my last right seven times and, you know, they were sure I was going to die and, I, and somehow I survived. And then every time you go back into the hospital for another surgery, you're almost reliving that stuff again. Yeah. It's not like your, your mind can detach from your body and, uh, your body remembers that stuff. Your mind remembers that stuff on some level. So you experience a lot of it again. And it's very unpleasant. It sounds like dad was almost Superman for you at this, at this point in time in your life. Absolutely down for you. Completely there. So cool. I'm just curious, what was your, what was your mom and your siblings? You said you were one of nine? Yeah. Wow. My I, I used to say it, I said it in the documentary, my dad took care of me and my mom took care of the family because mm -hmm. that's what she was good at doing. She was crushed. I mean, she used to pray for me to die when I was in the burn unit, um, but not because any nefarious reasons. She yeah. used to ask, tell God if, if my son's not going to be able to live the life that he lived before he got hurt. And, I know she knew that I wouldn't want to live if I was going to be um, disabled to the point where I couldn't function. And <clears throat> that was her biggest concern, you know, and, you know, uh, a mother's love for their kids is, is different than a father because I was once part of her and to see the kind of pain that I was in is very uh, cruel. It's cruel for a parent to have to look at their kid in that kind of condition. Even though you're, you know, we know that your mom did love you and there were nine of you guys, it seems like she was, your dad was more hands-on with you after your accident. Did that have any negative impact on you? Maybe subconsciously not feeling as loved by your mom or did, how did it impact you, her way no. of now, my mom was pretty aloof. Uh, she was not, the whole family was pretty aloof. It was easy to get lost in a, in, in a group of 11 people, you know, and so there wasn't a lot of intimacy or anything or, you know, um, it wasn't that we didn't love each other. We just didn't express it and we didn't feel that closeness because we didn't practice it, you know, but and I mentioned to you earlier, my father told me one time, he said, you know, your accident changed our family. He said, we used to walk down the hall. We'd walk right by each other without saying a word, you know, and we would say goodbye and we wouldn't hug each other or kiss each other. And he said, that's all changed. And he's right. He's right. The whole family did it after that. These hidden gems that come out of tough situations. We had a guest who is uh, dealing with cancer, and she said she was grateful to cancer because it made her relationship with her daughters and her husband much better than what it used to be. Um, we seem to learn when we struggle. Humans, we're an interesting breed. <laughs> we, we really are. I mean, you know, we have to be put to the test. There's just no, you're constantly evolving or devolving, and that's, that's all there is to it. And if you're not evolving spiritually, as you can see, how rampant it is in the United States now. People want money, property, and prestige, and shiny, you know, uh, bling kind of stuff. And it's all worthless. It's all worthless. I had $11 million. I wasn't even a little bit happy about that. I was excited because I could do whatever I wanted to do. I could, you know... I could go party and, you know, buy cars and this and that, and, you know, 
Um, I wasn't any happier. If anything, it put me in a position where I didn't know who were my friends and who, who really loved me and who was hanging out for the money. I always say, yeah. if I'm, hungry, I'm not telling anyone. I'm keeping it to myself. <laughs> a mortgage, I'll put my nieces mortgage, but I'm not telling anyone anything because of that. So no, it's true. Money, money as Cindy Lauper once said in the 80s, money changes everything. It does. Yeah. Um, it really does. But I also, it's another thing, you know, I don't have that money anymore. I still have, uh, I still get payments from the oil company because it was a lifetime annuity, thank God. But I live like just, you know, anybody else. I live in an 800 square foot log cabin in the mountains and my kids are down in South Jersey and my grandkids and, you know, we visit and I'm a wood artist and I do my thing with that. And uh, I've never been happier in my entire life. You know? How many children do you have? Excuse me? How many children do you have? I have two daughters. Um, they're 31 and 33. 31 year, I mean, the 33 year old just graduated nursing school uh, while dealing with the COVID and homeschooling her her six-year-old and 12-year-old. Wow. Yeah. She graduated with honors and got an award for her work in pediatrics and just got into one of the hardest nursing programs to get, to, get into in South Jersey. So I'm really proud of her. That's nice. Also, too, I'm sure when you were 20 years old and you first saw yourself in the mirror, I don't know what your thoughts were. I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I would assume that I would feel like, oh my God, how am I ever going to meet people? Am I ever going to find a partner? And you have children and grandchildren, so it's all possible. Well, and you know what? That's all back to the spiritual inside journey. Yeah. You know, like people who meet me, my friends, they said, Jana, they'd have to be lying, just like people say, I don't see color. Yes, you do, but it doesn't matter to you. Because yeah. you see the person, same thing with me, you know, they tell me, I, you know, that was like something, okay, they saw it, it was like, oh, and then I started talking to them, and we started relating to each other, and we started having a relationship, they said it just, just fell by the wayside, this is just me now, I never had a problem, it, you know, as crazy as it might sound, uh, dating, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I always uh, was dating somebody throughout the, the whole ordeal. All right, John. I, yeah, John. Yeah, I, yeah. I had a candy striper I went out with and one of my mm -hmm. physical therapy. <laughs> but uh, so that wasn't a problem. I, I don't know if I even worried about that, but I'm sure I did. Yeah. I mean, at 20 years old, everything is so superficial, the way we look, our athletic ability, the cars we drive, whatever it is. And all of a sudden you turn the page and you're not recognizable. At one point, my mind would have been like, holy Sergio, how are you going to function? So bravo, congrats. Were you going to say, Vanessa? Oh, I was just going to say he was plucking. sounds like he was plucking women right out of the hospital. Uh, good job for you, John. It actually but, was. Yeah, it's got that. <laughs> We're going to put that on a t-shirt. Plucking women out of the hospital. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like though what I really get from him being silly, but what I really get from your story is that there's something happened spiritually for you. And I, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but it sounds like you were able to relate to people on a, on a, another level. Do you think is that's true? Or you did some maybe soul searching? Being able to relate to people on another level. One of two things happened. Either it really scares people or they're totally drawn in by it. I obviously wear my pain. No way for people not to see it. So people who have a lot of pain, they're either pushed away by it or they're drawn into it. And I, I'm really good to talk to about pain, whatever kind of pain it is. So I think that that's absolutely true. And people know that, they just know, you know, for whatever reason. 
I was going to say, one of the great things too is that once you, they talk to you, they can relate to you. But we do know society is very superficial. Were you ever in situations out in public in restaurants or just walking down the street where people got a glimpse of you at first, especially in your 20s? You've been in this skin now for 21 years. So you're pretty comfortable with who you are. Did you deal with public reaction to your burns, to your phase? How was that for you? It was very difficult, incredibly difficult. You know, this, this, this didn't come overnight, it came over a couple decades. This, you know, this inside work that I did and I, I went through a lot of therapists and a lot of writing and a lot of doing spiritual work, you know, but at first it was horrible. I hated going out in public. I, I had a very small little geographical circle I traveled in because my methodology was you're going to get used to seeing me in a little tiny area. So now you wouldn't be so startled when you did see me and I wouldn't have to deal with that as much. You know, and I had to deal with the first time I walked into my bank, that was my bank for years, they pulled the alarm and called the cops. You know, now at that time I was wearing a, a jokest garment, which is like a, um, almost like a pantyhose material or stocking. <clears throat> it's a compression garment try to flatten out the scars but it also resembles a mask that a robber might wear that was the first thing they thought when i walked in the bank and i had cops full guns and pointed at my head while my mother was sitting there you know I, I had that i've had people say i can't believe they let this guy out in public i mean you know uh kids laughing and i'll tell you what i mean it, it, the only way to live in this world and have any piece of serenity is, is finding what you need to find on the inside. You know, I don't care who you are. I don't care. Because I tell people all the time, I don't care what you look like. I've seen some ugly people that are beautiful on the outside. I've seen some people who are beautiful on the outside. and They're, they're nice people, but they hate themselves. And they pick themselves apart every day. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of different manifestations to that. So I'm kind of good. I'm good to go. If I die the way I am, you know, it's like I don't have to worry about going through old age and wrinkles and stuff. <laughs> Scar tissue is pretty tight. So. Um, so obviously now it's easy to say that, right? Because you have done the work. And I think you uh, mentioned this a little bit. You have to look inward and figure out who you were. And I guess that kind of ridicule, rejection, or reaction you had from people almost forced you to look in because what you were getting from them was negative. So you had to look inward and figure out other things that make you great. You mentioned reading. When I had about three years clean, I really started searching and seeking. I started buying lots of books on spirituality and exploring that. And they, I had a question for the universe that was, uh, why did this happen to me? Now, I didn't do anything any worse than anybody else that I know. You know, I didn't do anything. I, I can't even conceive of anything I'd ever done to deserve something like this. Now, and, I, and I was still questioning that. Um, and a few books that I read, can I name them? Oh, of course. Books that rock, they rock. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I just started reading this book. I just started and I have it on audiobook. So when I drive to work on the way home, I make it a point to listen to it. It's, I, yeah, it's very helpful. I, I, yeah, this man found hope in a hopeless situation. And yeah. something that stood out to me about the book too, it says, when you rob people of an end date or a goal, how that really trips people out because you can aim for something, but if you don't have like a, a time to get there, lose connection with what you're trying to do and he referenced being unemployed and not having that you know getting up and going to work and doing a task and coming home knowing that it's going to end and that really got me thinking it made me think of sisyphus which is a totally different book but yes i just started listening to this book uh, on my drive-in and i read it when i get home so yeah anthony DeMello, absolutely wonderful guy oh my god and all he talks about is love. 
Um, I listened to, I, I read <clears throat> a couple books that were really simple that, that helped me a lot. Um, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And there were some great explanations in there for like, you know, how you arrive at certain places in your life and what you would have missed if you hadn't have taken that journey. And that how fruitful that ends up turning out. Um, and I started to say it earlier, it's like, I can tell you all this good stuff today. <laughs> you know, and how great it is to be alive. But if you had asked me that and I was able to talk and see you the day after my accident, you pretty would you pretty much would have got had an F you out of me, I'm sure, because the guy did. There was a guy that came in and he and I had a lot of spiritual experiences. There was a guy from the um, Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors. He actually started it. <clears throat> it was the first organization for burn survivors. And he came in and he visited me. And he leaned over and he said something to me when he left. And I don't know if he said it or it was just what I heard. Um, but what I heard was, you've been blessed with a gift and someday you're going to use this gift to help other people. That was prophetic, but it was certainly like you can have your gift and, you know, <laughs> no, understand. Go, go pound sand. Yeah. I mean, at 20 years old, I think we would have all reacted that way. A book that I read that kind of similar to what you're describing, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And that book basically says everything you've experienced in your life is going to prep you to where you need to be. So yeah. for me, instead of looking at my childhood and, oh, I didn't have a father or my mom was an addict or whatever else, you know, it took my grandmother's emotional and physical abuse to light a fire in me to want to get out. So at 16, I was living on my own. It took me at 16, balancing a checkbook, paying rent, working full-time, going to school full-time. By the time I was 20, I wasn't struggling like a lot of kids who grew up with their parents and have to move back in. So I looked at all my experiences and I was grateful that I had them all. And everything I've done in life, everything that's happened to me has prepped me for where I am today. So I can look at those memories and be grateful for them instead of feeling pity, which, you know, probably 10, 20 years ago, I felt pity and frustration. It's like, why me? But you're right. All these things, they're all blessings if we're paying attention. I totally know what you're talking about. I can relate to that. Yeah. And I mean, there is, there's been a metamorphosis in just the last couple of years because nobody has any idea how going through something like what I went through or any kind of trauma, kids growing up with abuse, whatever. It takes a lot of time to untangle that. And in between the time it starts and the time you get it untangled, you do some really dumb shit, excuse my language. And you get into it into encounters and relationships and things and it looks totally insane and it is i said to somebody today i left a 15-year marriage almost two years ago and i realized like as i was talking to this person that was where i needed to park myself literally for 15 years and be in a relationship where i felt unloved where i didn't know how to experience intimacy I didn't know how to be close uh, until I was able to come to my own uh, realization that I, I, I just didn't want to be there anymore. And I left. It was, I, I've gone through so much since then, just in the last two years. It's amazing. Because it's like you just keep pulling the cork out of a bottle and it just, stuff just keeps coming out. I had, got. I'm sorry. And the thing too that I've discovered with this is it's not a one-time fix. You had this epiphany two years ago and I'm sure you're looking back at those two years and you're like, what was I thinking? Look at my life, how much better it is. I find myself and I tell friends all the time, you have to keep picking at it and picking at it. And eventually you pick less and less. And also you evolve to a degree that you're not focusing on those things anymore. You're almost operating on a much more conscious level. And that's what I find for myself. Things that bothered me 10 years ago, I let go, you know. And I also learned through that process, being that my home life was so chaotic, my desire to control things is because that was the only way I can find stability. When my therapist mm -hmm. told me this, I was like, 
oh, I thought I was just type A personality. He's like, well, you are a little bit of that too, but your environment was so chaotic that if you control things, you feel safe. And that helped me let go. Is it done? No. I, I know, and also I've been cursed or blessed, depending on who you ask. I notice everything. I will notice something out of alignment. I will notice a button undone. I will notice a belt loop missed in the back. I, my mind, since I was five years old, I can scan a room and I've tracked everything in my head. Do I wish I could turn that switch off at times? Yes. I just have to learn now. It's okay, Sergio, you noticed it. Just don't say anything. Shut up. Keep it to yourself. So it's a struggle. Uh, I think a lot of people do that. I, I tell people it's like when one of your teeth fall out, your tongue goes right to the hole. It doesn't count the rest of the teeth you have left. You know, it just goes what right to what you see as being wrong. Um, constantly picking out mistakes and criticizing yourself, things around you and the people around you. I, I, I understand all that, but... Uh, uh, Do you have any words of encouragement for, for our listeners, friends, people who I find are always stuck or working through a challenge but are not willing to do the work? I find like this is a sort of a sickness and an issue with humanity in and of itself. And they'll complain and they'll talk about how terrible their life is and how, how things are getting them down but are never willing or able to do the work. Do you have any words of wisdom? Because you were, you were forced to it seems. And some of us are forced to, or are getting into so much pain that we have to look at ourselves. Um, I'm curious if you have any words of wisdom for those of for those people out there who are struggling um, to get to the next level, to, to go ahead and pick the scab because it's okay. Number one, uh, I have to disagree. I wasn't forced to do anything. I could have given up and just lay into the gutter and died. You know, I could have just, you know, played poor me for the rest of my life. And sought pity because people love to give people pity and feel bad for them. I could have done all those things, but I didn't because of the people that were put into my life. My life is the culmination of experiences with hundreds of different people who have guided me along and who have helped me in my life. So I've had tremendous amount of support. I've sought out people who know how to live life who are happy, uh, who enjoy good relationships. I'm not a religious person. In the last 24 years, I found that prayer and meditation are great ways to connect with a level of unconsciousness and consciousness that we all have. And it gives you this intuition and this acceptance of yourself that you, would never, you won't find it anyplace else. It's all in there. Everything, everything you need right here. That's the story of my favorite movie, The Wizard of Oz. That's the story. They all had what they needed before they even took their first step. They just had to take that journey to find out. And when they got to the end, they were able to see that. So everybody that's listening, you know, they, you have what it takes to do this. Don't let anybody tell you you don't, especially yourself. Find some people to support you, even if it's just one who has a positive view of life. When you find yourself getting down, find some gratitude. I mean, you know, I, I joke around, um, you know, I, I'm grateful I'm not on fire anymore. <laughs> I mean, but that is joking around. But listen, everything that happened to me could have been a whole lot worse. I saw people in various states of amputation and you know, uh, all kind of things that, you know, are horrible. Um, so, you know, I, I, there's a lot of stuff I look at and I can say, yeah, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I'm grateful I don't have to live the way I used to live. And I'm grateful that I can uh, help other people today. And, and that is, is it right there. You know, they say if you want to learn how to, be good at something, teach somebody else to do it. These people that helped me taught me how to help others. And by helping other people, I get what I need and they learn how to help themselves. And then they pass it along to the people that need it. 
Very and true. on and on and on it goes. Like they say, giving is the giving is almost greater than receiving a gift. It's the same thing. The more, anytime I've volunteered, anytime I've done something to help other people, it has been more fruitful and gratifying to me. Even doing this podcast, the fact that Vanessa and I get to talk to so many different people with different experiences, what it's done for me personally, just to, to hear myself and see myself work through the pain has been so essential. And I mean, to hear your story, you know, I have a bad hip. I bitch about it every now and then. Like you said, it could be worse. I could be on fire. Um, and I actually just reread Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. And that's one of the things he says in the book. What, right now, what are you stressing about? Is there someone holding a gun to your head? Do you not have a roof over your head? And I'm like, you know what? Right now, I'm okay. I'm breathing. I'm standing. I'm normal. There's nothing stressful. There's nothing really uh, fight or flight type of scenario. And it, at times, I, I just remind myself of that. So we're about to wrap up this uh, the part of the interview. So a few things. One, is there anything you can say to someone who maybe is struggling on some capacity? What's your, like I have a little ritual. I wake up in the morning, I meditate, I do my affirmations, I listen to my happy song, dance in my underwear, I make a green smoothie. On my way to work, I tell myself good things about life. You know, I have this, is there anything you do that helps you stay on track, helps you stay positive? Yeah, I surround myself, I keep surrounding myself and I keep engaging these positive people that have been in my life for a long time. I just lost one of my greatest spiritual advisors. He, he and I worked together for 16 years and he died of cancer a couple of weeks ago, but there are all these people are there to take, not take his place, but to step in and help. So I just keep engaging those people and engaging the practices that have got me to where I am today. And as long as I keep doing that, um, I'll be okay. I am okay, but I'll be okay. Yeah, my, first, my first spiritual guide used to say to me all the time, and, you know, I would say, I'll be okay. And he'd say, you're already okay. You just don't know it yet. That's yeah. one of the things that I got in one of the books. It says, don't talk about goals as a, as a destination. You are wealthy. You are healthy. You are joyful. You are happy. You are loved. I remember when my therapist said, you know, your parents are supposed to teach you that you're lovable. And when he said the word lovable, it stuck with me for weeks. I'm lovable. Hmm. Like, I realized at that point, oh, wow, there is something in me. And like I told you earlier when we spoke, when you were describing your relationship with your father, I could feel my body react because I know that I have an empty chapter. Well, maybe it's a half a page because I did meet him once. So I always get this warm sensation in my heart and joy when I hear fatherly stories or when I see fathers be fathers. I, I get, um, I get a, my body reacts. So I know I still have to heal some stuff in there. But now we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. You just have to say whatever comes to mind, okay? Mm -hmm. Ready, John? Ready? Describe okay. yourself in three words. Uh, charismatic, strong, and creative. Excellent. If you could be any animal, what would it be and why? Probably a wolf because they're pretty cool, kind of stealth. What is your favorite movie quote? <laughs> you won't recognize this at all. We'll see. Vanessa uh, looks a lot older than she looks. We'll yeah. <laughs> no, it's um. Don't tell us the movie. Tell us the quote and see if we can guess it. I, I can't. Yeah, you sir are a stench in the nostrils of humanity. Whoa! Oh gosh! That's you... one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in a movie. <laughs> you gonna that Definitely going back. Okay, now you have to tell me the movie. No, we don't know. I don't know. It was oh, an old you, western. It was an old western. I was just oh, watching gosh, it one day with my father. We'll have to Google this. I'm gonna have to go. Yeah. If you could go anywhere yeah. in the world, where would you go? Italy. Go see where my grandfather grew up. If you could yeah. trade, uh, if you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? They have to be alive, right? Doesn't matter. Not necessarily. It's your fantasy. You can make it whatever you want it to be. Gandhi. To finish the statement, when I dance, I look like... <laughs> <laughs> like I have two left feet. What is one thing you're most proud of? That I'm still standing, that I'm still going. 
I've been knocked down a lot of times and I keep getting up and that's key. There's nothing in life that says you're not gonna fall. You know, there's no shame in that, just get up. What is the most delightful word you can think of? Serendipitous. Love that word, that's my, one of my favorite words. What's on your bucket list? Last one, what's on your bucket list? I don't have any pine in sky kind of things. Uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff in my life, but I'd like to spend more time with my kids and my grandchildren. Talking to somebody now who, you know, may or may not fit me as far as the relationship, so that's exciting. So that's one of my things on my bucket list, though. I want to know what it's like to be in a loving, caring, intimate relationship with a woman before I die. But it's a tough one because I always say to be a conscious, contributing adult is a lot of work. Now to bring two people together and do that for each other. Incredibly hard. Yep. Very hard. Well, John, thank you so much for doing the interview with us. I'm so grateful you shared your story. And hats off to you because what you've been dealt with was a difficult hand. And you're managing and you're moving forward. And maybe it speaks to the human spirit how we overcome challenges, but good for you. you. You're moving forward and you're 61 years old. You're, you're still excited about life and, and that's wonderful. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing this. You said there was a documentary about you. What's the name of your documentary? Uh, the name of the documentary is Trial by Fire, Lives Reforged. It's available free on Prime if you're on all right. And you're also on TikTok. What's your TikTok handle? Johnny Flames. What is your Instagram handle? I think it's John Capana. Okay. I think it's my full name. John, how are you on TikTok and I am not? What, what am I doing wrong? Because John's younger than never. you. <laughs> my 12-year-old grandson said that uh, Pop is a burn survivor on TikTok. He's got like some stupid amount of followers and stuff. He said, you really ought to try it. I'm like, ah, okay. I mean, so I did. And I started posting videos with body image stuff. Right now, today, now that wasn't even two months ago. I have over 500,000 hits. I mean, over 500,000 likes, over a million views, and 45,500 followers. I'm on so, TikTok. You see that right there? You can tell. That's my biggest audience draw right there. <laughs> I put him on TikTok and I will have hundreds of videos, people liking and com uh, yeah. commenting. I put a video of yeah. me doing because I do comedy. Uh, TikTok, their algorithm screws everything up. They're okay with some like 14-year-old half naked swinging it. Yeah. And then I make a taboo joke and I get blocked. And I'm like, really, folks? Come on. So yeah, right there, yeah. this is going to be my ticket to popularity. Right there. Look at him. <laughs> All right, John, thank you so much for tuning in, for joining us. Uh, we'll be in contact. I'll let you know when the episode is out. I'll include all your documentary TikTok handles on our, in the show notes. And thank you guys for tuning in to My Limited View. Bye. Can you put my website on there? JohnCampana.com. That's where my wood art is. Okay. So I'll include all these things when the show Okay. Notes. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Bye, John. Vanessa, nice to meet it was you. a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. We all have a story. What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours? What's yours?